Hello and welcome back to the official SAS to podcast, your home for all things audio SAS, with me, Harry Stebbings, at H Stebbings, with two Bs on Snapchat, and brought to you by the main man at SAS to Jason Lemkin, at Jason LK on Twitter. It would be fantastic to see you on those respective platforms. But to the show today, and we haven't crossed to the VC side of the table for a while, and I'm delighted to say that that all changes today, as we welcome a very special individual to the hot seat today. So joining us, we have Steve Lachlan. Steve is a partner at Excel in San Francisco, one of the leading funds with prior investment in the likes of Facebook, Dropbox, Atlassian, Slack, and many more incredible companies. Prior to Excel, Steve was the CEO and co-founder of Relate IQ, later renamed Salesforce IQ, following the acquisition of the company by Salesforce in 2014 for $390 million. Steve was also president and CEO of Affinity Circles, a professional social network that connected more than 18 million professionals. Steve's also advised or invested in the likes of Palantir, Adapar, and Rome Analytics, just to name a few. And I do also want to say a big thank you to Jason Lemkin for the intro to Steve today, without which this episode would not have been possible. But enough from me, so I'm now delighted to hand over to Steve Lachlan, partner at Excel. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Steve, it's absolutely fantastic to have you on the show today. A huge thanks to Jason at Sasta for making the introduction, but thank you so much for joining me today, Steve. Thanks. It's, uh, it's great to be here. I'd love to get started, though, today with a bit about you and how you made your way into what I describe as the wonderful world of SaaS and then came to be a partner at Excel. Great question. So I actually came to Silicon Valley. I went to Stanford undergrad uh, and I was on the track and cross country team. And that's what brought me from Oregon, where I grew up. And when I graduated, I got a job with a company called Affinity Circles, which was selling private label social networks to universities and trade associations. And it had a great set of investors and board members. And I was fortunate enough to be their first uh, sales hire. And one of the things I did there was build out their first CRM. And uh, when I was an intern in college, I'd actually actually had worked on a, another product called Goldmine as an intern. And so for some reason, I, I found myself running track and field at Stanford and then also starting to learn kind of the, the idiosyncrasies of enterprise software and CRM software. It seems and, like a perfect life. Yeah, no, it was a great life. And uh, a couple months into the Affinity Circles journey, I had sold the company was about a year old, but I significantly increased the number of customers they had to the point where the board decided that they wanted to make a change. And I was, I was 23 at the time and they actually put me in as CEO, which was a extraordinary experience because I had no business getting that job. But I was fortunate enough to have folks like Craig Johnson, founded Venture Law Group, and Dennis Coleman, who's one of the co-founders of Symantec, and Fred Gibbons, who started software publishing. These folks had been around for a long time, and Bob Cohn, who founded Octel, became an advisor to the company. And so I felt really lucky to be surrounded by all these folks that at 23 I could learn from. Can I interrupt uh, yeah. just there and ask, yeah, sure. how was it being such a young CEO for the first time? And were there any big learnings from having that fantastic support group around you and being ushered into the spotlight probably so much earlier than you thought. Yeah, well, I wouldn't call it the spotlight because if you're hiring a 23-year-old CEO, uh, the company's probably not doing that great, who's the 10th employee. And so I think at that point, at least the area of the business that I was working on was was gaining traction. And so for me, it was, I just wanted to learn as much as I could and deliver value and kind of simplify the business. And so we went from having three customers to 200 over the next 18 months and got to a couple million in ARR and kind of rebuilt the team and the culture. But I think one of the interesting things I learned is I wasn't as familiar with capital 
structures or how companies, startups themselves were structured, how investors worked with each other. Um, and so ultimately, the business got to a certain size and then it was sold. And I think we could have done you know more interesting things with the business, but I wasn't the founder. And, I, and a lot of the, the kind of raw materials that you put the company together with at the beginning weren't aligned in place. And so you had a lot of good people that were kind of stepping on each other. And I think that my learning from that was, you know, knowing what problem you're solving, getting the values right, but also aligning the capital structure and everyone, everyone else you want around the company in the right way was extraordinary. But I wouldn't trade those years for anything because I had four years with incredible investors and advisors and in a tough market, you know, and in particular, this market was small, uh, was small. So I also learned kind of, you can, you can do a lot of things right, but if you're in a small market, you're going to constrain how much you can grow. And so it really informed a lot of the things I did later, but I learned how to hire, fire, run board meetings and push myself pretty hard during that period of time. And a lot of it was just kind of nasty company building work. And then the company didn't really have an outcome. So I, I kind of got out of there with you know a lot of skills and knew how to do a lot of things, but the company didn't have the outcome that we were searching for. Um, and so after I left the company, I, I put in a new CEO and uh, my friends at Palantir wanted me to come on uh, as an advisor and help with some of their go-to-market stuff. So I joined Palantir as an advisor. Around that time, I also started helping my friend Pooja Nath, who um, started a company called Piazza, which is in the education space. And I was an outside board member there and, and helped her pretty early on get going. And, and then I actually got advice from one of those <laughs> investors um, to go back to business school, which in uh, Silicon Valley, a lot of people say, don't go back to business school. And that was kind of the canned advice I got. And I think one of the things I've learned just from, you know, this is a place that people are very helpful and people like to give out advice, uh, which is fantastic, but you ultimately have to process it yourself and make the decisions that are best for you. And for me, combining kind of my startup experience with uh, a more traditional way of thinking about strategy, finance, and those things I thought would be something I'd be really interested in would round me out if I ever wanted to grow something really big, which was in the back of my mind. And so I ended up going back to Stanford Business School. And in my second year, I met my co-founder, Adam Evans, who was um, one of the CTOs of uh, Palantir Health, which is one of the verticals that he and I got to work on together when I was an advisor. And we got along really well. And interestingly, we my second year in business school, we, in April of that year, we got together and we had a couple different ideas, but we really honed in on this idea of, and this is in 2011, we honed in on the idea that there was all this massive data explosion happening. There's all these signals out there and that you can start intervening with end users to help them become more productive. And so naturally, we started kind of taking that argument down to knowledge workers and then saying, you know, what's, what's something that there's a lot of signals inside the enterprise that can help people make better decisions where there's a lot of friction. And we came up with relationship management and this concept of relationship relationship intelligence, where most of the systems that existed at the time required manual data entry. They weren't architected in a way to take advantage of the data that was being put into them to provide recommendations. And then you also had cost of storage going down, the ability to process improving with all the NoSQL databases and streaming technology. And then you also had all the open APIs. So we kind of said relationship management inside the enterprise is basically broken for teams. But if you can build something that's automatic, where all the signals themselves are being captured, if you can actually drive insight and suggest next actions and things like that and understand the health of those relationships, you could really transform that industry. But then there was also things you had to do around making it really intuitive to use and also rethinking the privacy and security model. If you're thinking through all the 
the impact of all this data coming in. And so we were uh, fortunate that in that first hour, and I still have a video and a picture of it. It's funny. Is like we kind of we kind of honed in on that idea, and I have a picture of like the whiteboard that Adam drew up, and that was kind of the beginning of Relate IQ. And so one of the things we did early was we built a prototype, just OAuthing into Gmail and making it very easy for people to manage some deals, but actually see the activity that's happening. And then the other thing we did that was kind of hacky was we wanted to show if you're a sales rep because we wanted to focus on one particular persona. If you're a sales rep uh, and your email and all your interactions with customers were automatically coming in and phone, Adam built something that crawled your cell phone bill. So you could actually see a real-time stream of your cell phone calls and your email against a customer. And we went and took that to about 10 customers. And this is before we'd incorporated the company. This is kind of in, in the May timeframe. And we, you know, by the 10th one, I still remember the VP of sales who kind of walked in the meeting. We did discovery. They, she explained all her pain. And it was literally like the spec of what we were trying to build. And then we demoed it for her and she wanted to buy it. And we walked out of that meeting and said, this is something we should go spend our time on and kind of dedicate our lives to. And uh, That's so a sign, corp- sign of product market fit. Yeah. Or at least I would say like marketing market fit because the product didn't necessarily work yet, but we were getting signs <laughs> that, that it, uh, that like, Hey, if we, if we could actually like, we're, we're going down the right direction. And so, cause she hadn't used it. She saw what she liked, which is also a trap sometimes if someone said they like something, but uh, they haven't tried it yet. But we, we had enough conviction that, Hey, let's go start this. So we raised um, a couple million dollar seed round and from there kind of grew the company and we were building and, and working with early customers for about two and a half years before we launched. And then about a year after that, we were acquired by Salesforce. I spent two years there on uh, Mark's staff, on the executive team there, which is a wonderful group of people. And we weren't for sale. And then I got an opportunity to meet Mark and we did really accelerate the business. And I'm very proud of what we accomplished as a part of Salesforce for those two years. And also what Salesforce has continued to do with a lot of the technology and projects we built, including Einstein, kind of the success of that. And then after about two years there, I was happy, but the had this kind of feeling inside that I wanted to go back and work with emerging companies. And so uh, I had a great relationship with the Excel folks. They're a great group of people. And I thought about kind of in the context of me being an entrepreneur, what's the type of venture capital firm I would want to go to? And the thing I like about the way Excel practices venture capital is they kind of look at every company and say, how do we help this company become the best version of itself? And are very, you know, they ask tough questions and are stewards of the company, but very much in line with the CEO is the one who's kind of blazing the path in this particular category. So how can we support them going down this path? And I felt like that. Um, I had ping on my board, but I got to know a lot of the other partners there. And so it was one of those things where it just felt like... Uh, felt like the right move. Yeah, it felt like it, it, wasn't, it wasn't like I sat and did a spreadsheet and did pros and cons or something like that. It was more of a, wow, this is where I want to go spend my time and get after it. And I've got, I've got a question <laughs> from uh, Jason in particular, who asked, with regards to the Relate IQ experience itself, he says you were very early to the AI ML game with the play. So what yeah. did you get right? And what do you think you got wrong with that situation and, and how you kind of integrated it? Yeah, well, I think the, um, you remember at that time, AI ML was not kind of a huge category yet, but we'd been exposed to it as part of Palantir and kind of saw the power of delivering data to analysts at the right time to make decisions and the power of collaboration across data. And so uh, we thought the long-term positioning of the company was AI and ML and taking advantage of all these signals, but step one was capturing all the data. And then we weren't doing AI and ML just to do AI and ML. It was what problem are we solving? Therefore, what data do we need? And what's the end user experience going to be like? 
that's enabled by the AI ML. So I'd say we did that part right. I would say the thing that we struggled with early on was how much of the infrastructure do we build and how how deep do we go into the AM to the AI ML world as a way to differentiate versus delivering a great user experience for the target segment we were going after. And so I would say what we did well was actually delivering things that were very useful to end users and customers, but sometimes we overbuilt on the infrastructure side, planning for features that we thought were going to come years down the road. And so I think it's a really hard problem to solve as you're building, but I think we could have probably moved faster on the app side. But at the same time, I think part of the strategic value of the company was the architecture and the platform. Absolutely. And one interesting element that I'd love to discuss is I recently had Tom Tungas on the show, and he suggested for ML SaaS plays to be interesting, it has to change the go-to-market strategy. I'm intrigued to what extent you agree with this, with the, with the experience of Relate IQ behind you and now being an investor with Excel. To what extent do you agree with this and where ML can be really, truly transformative? Yeah, I mean, he's really bright on this topic. And so I think I think that's insightful. And yes, it's probably true. But I don't think it's required that you have to, it has to change the go-to-market. It can also just kind of transform the value proposition. And so if you think about, think about like new data sources that are emerging that are going to, that are going to transform the actual value of the application itself, we can think about something like voice, you know, from over the last couple of years, email has been integrated into horizontal SaaS apps like sales and service, but the data that's inside voice that actually tells the story of the relationship with the customer that can then be analyzed and suggest next steps to that end user, whether it's an agent or a sales rep is pretty untapped. And so you could actually have the same go to market method, but if you re thought your app around capturing those signals and then redefining a workflow inside a company. Like we have a, um, a seed investment we did in a company that was in YC this year called Voice Ops. They were formerly called Clover. And they're, they're using voice to rethink how sales managers look at the efficacy of their sales reps. And so the, the old workflow was that they would go listen to phone calls and see how the reps were doing. And then after some period of time, they look at the outcomes of their deals and, and look at how they were tactically behaving and get an outcome. And now voice ops is letting them, letting the data automatically be captured. It then gets processed and using machine learning, like actually puts it into, hey, this call was was effective or wasn't effective on these six dimensions. So it does the labeling and then shows it over time. So a sales manager can actually kind of real time look at how their resources in an inside sales organization are actually operating. And that's a very specific kind of workflow. But I think it's an example of, you know, how you can, you can take these old workflows and add a new type of data, analyze it in the right way and then deliver a product experience where that, for example, that sales manager isn't thinking that I'm consuming AI or ML. He's just thinking, like, I don't have to go sit on 25 sales calls today. Can I, I can just look at this report. Can I ask, do you think the data incumbency advantage uh, within the consumer world is equally applicable to the SaaS world? And how do you think about that data incumbency advantage when, when looking for investment opportunities within the realms of enterprise SaaS? Yeah, I think like the data as a moat, or if your if your app itself is actually generating a new type of data that's unique, or you're joining two types of data and then owning a workflow, I think those are all things that are real advantages. But I think what's unique to SaaS and enterprise in particular is typically you know you, you know there's a buyer 
and they're trying to solve a problem. And you can usually kind of look at the, you know, there's usually an incumbent solution. And so you have to really differentiate from, you know, the folks that you're competing with. So in the in my personal experience, like with Relate IQ, we made a bet. We said that the future of CRM is going to be automatic, intelligent, intuitive, and there's going to be new collaboration models given kind of the privacy model. And at the time when we started, that was very different than any of the competitors. And we could have been wrong, but we at least kind of put a stake in the ground and said, this is going to be a different, we're going to, five or 10 years, we think this is the winning platform. We're going to try and build it. We could be wrong, but it's differentiated. And so I think to answer your question, companies that are building in this space need to think about kind of what their strategic bet is combined with what the tactical implementation of that bet is, is how that's playing out with their existing customers. So having a short-term plan to kind of prove out like, hey, you know, we do think voice is differentiated, but in the long run, our bet is that combination of voice and people are going to change the way they think about sharing data and they're going to be working out of their cars more or something, you know, like that's our bet. And we could be right or wrong, but like it's a big strategic bet and that's what we're going to build towards. As a SaaS founder, how do you balance between building for the future and then building for the here and now? How do you get that very even balance that allows you to kind of uh, simultaneously achieve both? Yeah, I think it's the hard, I actually think it's the hardest thing to do as a management team in as an emerging company in SaaS. But the framework that we used to use was we had a set of high-level criteria that would run through all our decisions. So what problem are we solving? What's our mission? What are our values? And what are our key factors for success that are kind of the true north over the next five or 10 years? And then that would roll into a tactical plan quarter over quarter that was very specific about who's our target customer. And when you go in, especially in a SaaS context, and you pick a target market, it should be a subset of whatever your long-term vision is of that market that you're going to serve. But you need to dominate that particular area. And being focused is okay. And that means you say not now to certain customers that don't fit that criteria. So in the in the Related IQ case, very early on, before we built, for example, any integrations with marketing automation, we were focused on Gmail customers that had teams of 1 to 100 that where most of the interactions with their customers were done over email because we knew we could we could do really well in that environment but we had to say no to exchange customers until we built the exchange integration and we had to say no to customers who were running their drip campaigns out of HubSpot you know until we made that integration to actually capture their workflow so making sure you're selling into customers where it's a big enough market to hit your numbers but it's also a small enough market to where given your resources you can actually go dominate that particular segment i'm i'm intrigued when you talk about kind of markets and market expansion how do you think about the when and the how of launching the second product? Ooh, good question. This is one of those where I think every company is different and it has to be done within the, this is kind of the, the tough part about being an emerging company is you have to execute every day, every quarter, you need to hit your annual plan. And so when there, I talk to founders a, is about- Is there a tipping point to the success of the first product, meaning the the requirement for the second, you know, the kind of full- Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so I was going to say, so it has to do with like how fast you're growing and how fast you want to grow. So if you're if you're a SaaS company and you say, hey, over the next three years, we want to do kind of 3 million in year one, 10 in year two, 25 in year three, then, the, then you have to look at your particular market and say, can we do that on one product? Or do we have to add products to kind of grow where a portion, when we go to 10 to 25, we're adding new logos, but we're also selling a second product into our existing base. I think it depends on the market and the segment. And so, but it's a question you should be asking. And you can ask that by saying, for our growth this year, if we're going to go from 10 million in ARR to 25 million ARR, are we expecting 100% of it to be new logos? Or do we need to build stuff for our existing customers where we can extract more ACV from them? Mm-hmm. 
Absolutely. And so uh, that's the framework I would use, but but I, I'd be hesitant to say there's a like once you've once you've achieved X, Y, and Z, then you should add a second product. I think every company is different. No, I, I completely agree. I, d- I do want to relate back though before we go into a quick fire to the Relate IQ experience and obviously being acquired by Salesforce, as you said, and joining the exec team with uh, Mark Benioff. Obviously, talk to me then. What were the key learnings from working so closely with Mr. Benioff, uh, and how was that experience for you? It was extraordinary and I have a deep amount of respect for him. I feel very fortunate to have watched him operate and to watch that company operate. There's so many incredible attributes about that company and their ability to continue to perform year after year is you know, is extraordinary. And and for me, there's a couple things that I observed about Mark. Him individually, watching him be able to dive into a product and really deeply understand a particular feature or why we're doing something in a particular segment because Salesforce is a multi-product company, but just his depth of knowledge of how those products relate to each other and how they impact the customer to then 15 minutes later going through forecast and being able to understand, you know, in this region, we're actually going to beat our plan. This is an area where we need to go uh, do some more enablement. He was truly kind of extraordinary in his market and, and knew how to run this company. Um, I'd say the other thing that as you think about scaling your company that they did really well was internal communication. So Mark does, you know, it's, he's, he's documented publicly his V2 mom process, which is vision values, methods, obstacles, and measures, which he, he, when he started the company, he wrote one of these. It's basically, everyone has their own version of kind of an annual plan, but just the way it scaled with how big the company was, watching him kind of roll out what the plan was and providing transparency into the organization was, it was remarkable to watch and to participate in. And so, you know, I learned a ton from him, but the, the biggest thing that he would ask that I think is even more relevant at earlier stages is he was ruthless with prioritization. So is this more important than this? Is this more important than this? And that came out in the way that you prioritize your methods. And he used to always say, like, if everything's important, nothing's important. And so you had to be prepared to kind of think about how you were going to allocate your time and how it related back to the broader plan. Absolutely. I mean, some incredible takeaways there. But I I do want to move into one of my favorite elements of the show, which is the quick fire. So Steve, 60 seconds faster. How does that sound? (laughs) Let's do it. So 60 seconds per statement. Let's start with a really interesting one. I can't wait to hear your thoughts on. What's the worst advice you hear? here often being dispersed in your industry? I call it kind of the uh, fortune cookie advice where you just hear people prescribe, you should do X. So you should hire more reps or you should go into that market without actually asking questions to the, the person who has to make that decision. And so, you know, the way I think about it, I, I usually try and when I meet with an entrepreneur, I'll say like, hey, we can have a discussion, but you're going to have to make the calls and you have a lot more information than I do. So I may tell you 25 things, but you, it shouldn't be a justification that you hired five more reps because Steve told you to. And so, you know, I get my skin kind of crawls when I see an entrepreneur being told like you should do X without any data. Absolutely. Right. What's something that you've changed your mind on radically in the last few years? Probably the ability for cloud and machine learning companies to go into mid-market and enterprise earlier. When we were starting Relate IQ, there was still a lot of hesitancy around sharing data and data products because in order to for a provider to give you an intelligent application back, you have to you know they have to give you data. And I think today people are a lot more comfortable with that. And also companies are realizing in order to be competitive, they have to be data driven. And so a lot of times now we're meeting with emerging companies. They're 
ability to really sell into the mid-market and have higher deal sizes and even start in enterprises uh, is something that I think has shifted and I've changed my mind on it. It used to be you start an SMB and then work your way up, but I think you can actually start mid-market enterprise in certain categories. What's your favorite SaaS reading material? What are you completely entranced by when it comes through the network, email, online? What's your favorites? So I've known Jason forever. So his, like, no, when you know someone personally that's writing about this stuff, you know, it doesn't get any better because you can kind of get a glimpse that you know his personality as he's writing it and you can imagine him talking about it. And so, you know, Sasser is kind of the definitive publication on this stuff. Absolutely. Good answer. Otherwise, it would have been a very awkward conversation. Uh, yeah. But, <laughs> yeah, no, it would have been. But I yeah. do want to kind of finish this very chronological timeline. And we've started to stay with your recent move to Excel, obviously a massive congratulations on that in the first six months. Um, with that in mind, though, having been a founder and experienced both sides of the table, how do you look to help founders now you're an investor? Uh, <laughs> that was Jason. Yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, no, it makes sense. Um, I mean, for me, it's I'm looking to invest in those companies and go on a journey with them and, and support them and not not run the company, right? I think, I think one of the dangers when you're a founder is that um, you've done it before, but every, as I mentioned earlier, like every company is different and the role of being an investor is very different than being on the management team. And so, do you ever find you know, it, I think, do you ever find it challenging not taking that operational hands-on role? Now you're on the other side of the table. It's a good question. I mean, to date, no, but I, I think there's going to be moments, you have moments when you're in meetings and you're like, Oh, I think, you know, they should probably go left. But I think, you know, when you, when you look at a particular experience and you've kind of coached yourself ahead of time, that like, I don't want to be, I remember what that was like when people would do that to me. And so, you know, I think I'm trying to balance making sure that I do intervene at the right way and just figure it out. And I think that's one of those things that just comes with time anytime you're in a new role. But yeah, I mean, you have those, you have those moments, but you just have to realize that as an investor, the impact your words have on the company and use it judiciously because they're, they're going to listen. And so you just have to be careful and, and not kind of go off the cuff. Another, another one from Jason related to kind of help to founders. Where have you found yeah. that very early stage founders need the most help? And where do you think VCs claim to add the most value where maybe they don't? You can draw on your experience from the, both startups with that one, I'm sure. I think, um, you know, there's, there's this interesting tension where you want to be super helpful, but you also want the companies to garner capabilities and learn, you know, learn how to fish themselves in certain areas. In a lot of cases, you have CEOs who have really incredible spikes in their capabilities and there's some things they've never done before. And so I think a way you can be really helpful is recognizing those strengths and helping the, the founders and the management team double down those strengths and then bringing people around the company that can help educate them on those those things that they don't know how to do. And so, you know, I think the one thing that I experienced when I was an entrepreneur that I appreciated is like I, I used to get a little apprehensive when people were diving into the details and the weeds um, and not tying it back to what we were trying to accomplish. And so, you know, I think one of the, the what we talked about earlier about having a five or 10 year vision and plan and set of foundational principles of why the company exists is critical because it sets the guidelines for how to give companies feedback. And so for me, that's something I've spent a lot of time with the companies I've been meeting is they may have a really interesting product with some traction, but also getting them to step back and say, you know, why are you building this company and how does what you're doing today relate to your ultimate vision? Because if we're going to invest, we need to understand what that is because our job is to support that vision to become a reality. You mentioned your friendship to Jason 
mentioned there, I mentioned Jason's input with the questions. So I want to finish today with a very, very serious question. Uh, as we said, you've known Jason for a long time. Tell me, dish the dirt, I haven't known him for as long as you have. What are the embarrassing stories on the godfather of sass himself, Jason Lemkin? It's just us. No one is listening. Uh, no one's listening. I was actually, I was thinking about that when you sent that over, and it reminded me of a moment where when we were first getting related IQ started, I uh, connected for coffee or something, and he's like, what do you say? He goes, we literally had some alpha customers, and we're just thinking it through, but Jason's mind is always going 100 miles an hour, and he's very creative and loves marketing, and so he just looked at me, and he's like, you guys, you guys need to be the bad boys of CRM. That needs to be what related IQ is. You guys need to just be like the bad boys, like the Detroit Pistons of CRM, and I kind of looked at him, I'm like, Jason, do you think I'm like the bad boy of CRM? Come on, man. But he was so, it was, it was like a creative moment. I've never forgotten that, and I'm glad we did not go down that path. <laughs> but it was a valuable input all the same, I think, is the answer. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> but, but Steve, seriously, it's been such a pleasure having you on the show. Jason told me it'd be fantastic, but it's by far exceeded all expectations, so I can't thank you enough. Uh, thanks, I appreciate it. So much fun having Steve on the show there, and I want to say a big thank you to him for giving up the time today to come on the show. And if you'd like to see more from us, then you can follow me on Twitter at Harry Stebbings, on Snapchat at H Stebbings with two Bs, or you can follow the main man Jason Lemkin on Twitter at JasonLK. We'd love to see you on those respective platforms, and look very forward to bringing you the next episode.